Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, Kara Platoni is a journalist and teacher who writes about science. She took a year off to travel around the world searching for cutting-edge investigations into sensory perception, from what the taste of fatty acids does to us and mice, to how scent triggers memories in Alzheimer's patients. The lessons she learned inspired her new book, We Have the Technology, How Biohackers, Foodies, Physicians, and Scientists Are Transforming Human Perception One Sense at a Time. Kara Platoni lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she teaches at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Anna Tatashev recorded her talk at Town Hall Seattle on January 13th. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you everybody for coming out on this rainy night to, um, to hear about a new book by a first-time author. So, uh, so I wanted to tell you uh, what's inside the giant head that's on the cover of this book. So this book is about sensory perception, how you experience the world through your five senses, taste, smell, touch, hearing, and vision, and how you can hack them or how people are trying to hack them. So the starting point for this book is that there's no one reality. And once you get over that idea, the rest is just like a downhill ride. So, and what I mean by that is there's no one single reality, no concrete uh, objective portrait of the universe that we all share. There's only your perception, your experience, and that's a construction. And everyone's construction is different, and it has to be, right? Because we're all genetically different, we all have, and because of that, we all have different bodies, we all have different brains. It's also because... The world throws too much information at you for you to take it all in. You have to filter. You have to learn how to attend to some information and discard the rest. And everyone's filtering process is different. And that uh, we have a lot of different social forces that act on you that teach you how to filter information. Culture, language, these are all social forces that teach us what is important in our environment. And most of all, your senses are limited, right? So there are other animals on our planet who have senses we don't have. Sharks can sense electricity. The pit viper can sense the infrared. Honeybees can see ultraviolet. There are a lot of animals, migratory animals, like birds, sea turtles, that can sense, electro, uh, they can sense magnetic fields, right? And one of my first things that I did when I started reporting this book is I met with this biohacker collective called Grindhouse Wetware. There are these guys in, in Pittsburgh, and they are mad as heck about this, right? Why can't we sense gamma rays? Why can't we see a sunset in the infrared, right? Why are we being outperformed by a butterfly? <laughs> and what they are doing... They're kind of the electrical engineering arm of the broader biohacker universe, which kind of includes people who try to, to augment or supplement or optimize the human body through things like uh, nutritional supplements, diet, wearable gadgets, things that track your exercise, things that track your sleep. These guys are actually building things in their basement to implant in their body in a bid to give them some kind of new sensory experience. And at the end of this talk, I'll show you a little bit about what they're doing. And while those guys are kind of an extreme, they're part of actually this huge universe of people who are out there who are researching sensory perception. Some of the people that I met with have uh, a medical reason to want to do this. They, they are working on things that are meant to help people who have a medical need. Some people are purely out there for exploration, for enhancement. Uh, they're kind of, uh, I kind of think of some of these guys as sort of the new psychonauts. You know, a couple generations ago, they would have been ex exploring with drugs. Now they're exploring with trying to actually change their body. So this book uh, for those of you who haven't had a chance to check it out yet, it's essentially 11 stories. And each story is about a group or a person that's doing something really, that I think is really interesting on the cutting edge of sensory perception. So just to give you an idea of some of the people who are in the book who I'm not going to talk about tonight, um, the chapter on vision is about Dean Lloyd, who's one of the first people on the planet who has ever relearned how to see. So he, Dean Lloyd was born with normal vision, but he lost it as an adult thanks to a disease called retinitis pigmentosa. And he was essentially blind for 17 years until he volunteered to become one of the first people to test the Argus II retinal implant. 
So this is an implant that actually lives inside his eye. It's at the very back of his eye. He wears a pair of glasses with a camera mounted over the nose bridge. The camera takes that visual feed, transforms it into electronic impulses. Those impulses stimulate the surviving photoreceptors at the back of his eye. And through that, he gets an alternative kind of vision. It's not what he remembers from before. He doesn't see objects with shading and in 3D. He doesn't see color the way that he used to. It's mostly flashes of light that indicate contrast points between dark and light. But with this, he can navigate by foot. He can tell what objects are in front of them. He can tell when people are looking at him. Um, One of the things that he can't see very well is organic matter. He mostly sees kind of Um, contrast areas and reflective surfaces. One day I was talking to him and he was looking at me and he said, your eyes are glowing. And I said, what do you mean? And we realized he was looking at the reflection in my glasses, right? So that's what vision is to him. And from him, we can learn a lot about how the mind constructs vision. Even with very limited information, he can get this useful perception. Um, I got to sit in on a robotic surgery. That's one of the reasons I had to get all those vaccines. Uh, I watched Dr. Sherry Wren operate on a patient from across the room. And the thing uh, about robotic robotic surgery or telesurgery right now is it's entirely visual. There is no way to render haptic feedback, so the surgeon actually can't feel themselves touching their patient. But I went to learn about a lab at Stanford where researchers are trying to develop devices that would help the surgeon actually get some touch feedback from inside the the patient's body, which is very challenging. And it turns out that this is actually the precursor to an even more sci-fi development that is, that is, is underway, it's happening right now, uh, which is a neuroprosthetic limb that is driven by thought. So a person would think and their limb would move, their robotic limb would move, and it would be able not only to move, but to render touch feedback about the world around them. And this is a thing that would make a prosthetic device extremely useful. People could tell how tightly they were gripping something. They could tell if they were about to drop it. The researchers told me one of the things that um, people say they want in a prosthetic device is to be able to feel the warmth of a loved one's hand. And at the moment, they can't do that, but they're getting very, very close. Um, I went to a military base in Colorado to learn about a very unique experiment in virtual reality, to learn whether or not you could use virtual reality to pre-treat soldiers before they deploy to make them more resistant to post-traumatic stress disorder. In other words, can you put them in an anxiety-provoking situation that simulates something they might experience in real life and teach them coping mechanisms while they're in that simulation so that later, if something like it happens, they understand how to deal with it better. And this is built on actually already 10 years of research that has shown that virtual reality can be used as a treatment for people who have already served and already come back and already developed the symptoms of PTSD. But one of the arguments I want to make is that not all technology has to do with wearables and gadgets and electronics and computers. I think technology is anything that we humans have made to enhance our lives, to help us, to be a tool, right? So some of the things, some of the technologies that I wrote about, for example, one of them is perfume. So it turns out that problems with smell is the first clinically observable symptom of Alzheimer's disease. The olfactory center of the brain is very old, and the centers for memory and emotion are very tightly linked to it. And when one thing is affected, the others are affected as well. So I went to a hospital in Paris where uh, they were using those little paper wands I I briefly showed you. A a group of uh, volunteers who are basically members of the cosmetics industries, had developed what they called a bibliothèque, a library of scents that would be resonant to a person who had grown up in France. So they were scents of food, uh, flowers. The day I was there, it was fruit. And they would go into the geriatric ward, and they would meet with people, and they would dip the wands into the scent and wave it under their nose and say, what are you smelling? And see if they could get them to, to recall a memory. And the beautiful thing about this idea for olfactotherapy therapy is um, with Alzheimer's disease, the problem isn't that the person stops smelling overall. Don't worry if you can't smell as well as you used to, by the way, because everybody's sense of smell gets a little crummier with age. The thing that Alzheimer's does is it makes it harder to distinguish between scents. It becomes easier to mix them up. Everything starts to smell more and more alike. So the beautiful thing about olfactotherapy is uh, even if the person remembers the wrong thing, 
they can still recall a memory. And because you've all probably had that experience of having a sudden memory that's kind of spurred by something you smelled, reminds you of somebody or something from your childhood, right? That memory can still be poignant. It can still be sweet, even if you can't identify the right word. So that was a very cool thing. The chapter on pain is about medicine specifically. It's about acetaminophen, the generic name for Tylenol. Uh, Pain researchers are increasingly finding that the pain of a broken bone and the pain of a broken heart or social rejection, pretty much the same to your brain. When they put people in the fMRI scanner, the same thing is going on in the same place. So they've tested this by putting people in the scanner and they give them Tylenol and then they socially reject them while they're in the scanner. <laughs> Which is actually really hard to do. Like in an fMRI, you can't move, you can't talk. So, <laughs> so the first group to did this, they actually showed people pictures of the person who had recently dumped them. <laughs> and then uh, and the generation after this, they had people play a game called Cyberball, uh, which is, is kind of like a virtual game of keep away. They would tell people, okay, you're playing a game with other people. You have to pass this ball back and forth. And after a while, the other players would leave out the person they were testing. And they would feel rejected. But the people who took the Tylenol felt less rejected. And then they would do it the other way around. They would put people in the scanner and they would give them pain. They would administer kind of like a little burn while they were showing them either pictures of their romantic partner or pictures of an equally attractive stranger. And it turns out that love is a painkiller. People who are looking at the person that they loved experienced less pain, right? So the chapter I wanted to talk to you about tonight is very different. It's a different kind of technology, and uh, I think you'll get the hang of what it is. So I wanted to talk to you about the search for a sixth taste. So, um, so this is where I'll actually get to the reading proper. So... Um, Mike Archer carefully lays our supplies on the lab countertop a DNA collection kit, a kitchen timer, a bottle of water, a bag of oyster crackers, a green file folder, which he opens to reveal a set of plastic baggies taped neatly inside, each containing a gel wafer the size of a postage stamp. There's also a mysterious device with puffy foam discs on its pincher ends. These are my nose plugs. Archer mimes how to gently clamp my nostrils shut so I can taste but not smell. I want you to do a little sniff test to make sure you don't have any air going through your nose, he says. I try them on, and it's like instantly having the world's worst cold. Perfect, Archer says. The experiment is ready to begin. Behind us, it's a snowy school day morning at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Jubilant eddies of kids on field trips wearing borrowed lab coats and goggles blow through the adjacent biology exhibit where they can extract DNA from wheat germ or measure the sugar in breakfast cereals. And by the way, those are actually child-sized lab coats, which is probably the cutest thing in the world. (laughs) Every now and then, they glance curiously through the enormous plate glass doors that separate this working lab space from the rest of the museum. Archer, a retired dentist, is a volunteer, part of the small army of citizen scientists who power the genetics of Taste Lab, the formal name for our setup on the other side of the glass. The lab coat he's wearing is mostly for show, but the test we're about to do is real. If it works, it will shed some light on one of the biggest mysteries in sensory science. We are going to see if I can taste fat. Not bacon, not cream, just fat. Or more specifically, fatty acids, or even more specifically, this monster, which is, that's linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid which is vital to the human brain and immune system, and for that reason is something researchers think that our bodies should be able to sense in our food supply. If I and the 1,500 other museum visitors taking part in this experiment can taste fat, we will have helped prove whether or not there are more than five basic tastes. Or to put it more bluntly, we will have helped show that there are still unnamed, unexplored dimensions to a sense we thought we already knew. So they have this easel propped up, which is the five basic tastes, Salty, sweet, sour, umami, which is also sometimes called savory, and sour. And so these are considered kind of the building blocks of taste, just the way red or blue are considered primary colors. They're the basics. They can't be further subdivided into anything else. So you can't divide sweet and get something that's a reduction of sweet. So some of you, like me, if you went to school in the last century, you might remember a time when there were only four basic tastes, right? The umami didn't exist. Um, Uh, Umami didn't officially make the list until 2000, although the concept had already existed for a century in Japan. It was discovered in 1908 by Dr. Kikunai Akita, who argued that it was a fifth taste associated with the amino acid glutamate. That's what's in MSG, right? Monosodium glutamate. 
Its, ups, its acceptance upended the food research world, hinting that the taste universe was bigger than previously thought and casting doubt on the definition of a basic taste itself, fueling a quest to see if there were more primaries. Much like the 17th century astronomers who suspected there were planets beyond the orbit of Jupiter, scientists are now searching for new candidates that would enlarge our known system. So fat is championed by Dr. Richard Mattis, who's a nutrition scientist at Purdue University. And one of the confounding things about this quest for a basic taste is there are no rules. Nobody's actually come up with like an official list of what you have to do to be a basic taste. So, so Dr. Mattis came up with these rules of thumb, which are very well accepted in the field. And here they are. You have to have receptors. There has to be something on the tongue that binds with the chemical. So like for sweet, that's sugar. For umami, that's glutamate. It has to travel to the brain along the gustatory nerve. That's the nerves that convey information about taste. And this is really tricky for fat because fat is also a texture, right? It's one of the things that makes eating fatty foods like ice cream so enjoyable is they're also a mouthfeel. So how is the information getting to the brain? That's actually really important and very hard to control in human studies. It has to have, that says purpose. It has to have a purpose. And most food researchers will agree that a basic taste, there's a reason for it. It's either attractive, like for example, sweetness is attractive because it tells you where the calories are. Savory is attractive because it tells you where protein is. Uh, bitter is aversive because that's usually where a toxin is. Most poisons are, are bitter. Um, with things like salt, they think it's kind of a matter of satiety. You crave it when you need it, and then when you have too much, it's repellent to you. Yeah, which is interesting, right? Um, it has to have a physiological reaction. It has to actually do something to your body. And this is tricky with fat. So in rodents, uh, Mattis has found that you give mice and rats uh, fat and they salivate and they make this enzyme called lipase. And lipase basically breaks down these big fatty acids into something that's small enough to lock with the receptor on the tongue. He thinks the same thing happens in humans. And his proof is that he does these studies where he gives people hard fats like coconut and soft fats like olive oil, and then he sees how much lipase they produce. That's the physiological reaction. You chew the coconut, you salivate a lot, you make lipase, right? But the big thing, the thing we really care about is can anyone sense it, right? And is it distinct from the other five? So that's where the museum comes in, with its constant influx of visitors of all genetic backgrounds, many of them arriving in family groups, which is always a bonus for genetics researchers. So like me, here's, the, here's our setup. So like me, everyone swabs the inside of their cheek with that giant Q-tip thing that you see there. Like me, they learn to swish and swallow from the water bottle to cleanse the palate in between tests. And like me, they are directed to make use of those oyster crackers there in case they eat anything that's really extra gross. And then they try some fatty acids. Archer opens the file folder and extracts the first of the wafers. It's a gelatin square the color of onion skin and perhaps a bit thicker. So if you've ever had a melt-away breath strip, it's essentially the same thing. Ex except instead of being minty, it has this linoleic acid in it. And each strip has a different concentration of it. So Archer explains I'm going to do what's called a scaling test. I'll place each strip as far back as I can on my tongue and hold it there for 45 seconds. Which, by the way, if any of you have ever taken communion, this is exactly what this feels like. <laughs> Don't bite the wafer. <laughs> so he says we're going to do three practice strips, and then we're going to do four to test whether I can perceive the acids at different strengths, because each strip has a different amount in it. And he explains that some of them may be placebos with nothing in them at all. This is a double-blind study, meaning you don't know what these are and I don't know what these are, Archer says, gesturing towards the file. All right, nose clips on, nose clips on. So we do a couple practice ones, and then he gives me one where he says, okay, this one has linoleic acid in it, and it's the only time they're going to let me know that it's in there for sure, and the idea is they want me to be able to kind of clue in to what this thing is, right? So this will also be my first hint about whether there's something to this fat idea, whether I've joined a gustatory wild goose chase. Archer proffers the gel strip and readies the timer. Close your eyes. Just kind of concentrate on what you're experiencing, okay? At first, there is nothing. Maybe 15 seconds of gelatinous blandness. And then there is a wash of something. My mouth puckers. The first word that springs to mind is bitter. But that's already a basic taste. Try again. Acid, my brain suggests. But acid is essentially sour, and that's another basic taste. My mind flails. How am I ever going to come up with a possible sixth sensation without using... How am I ever going to explain a sixth sensation without using the terminology of the other five? And here, I've run into the secret second purpose of the museum experiment. We're not just here to see if we can taste fat. 
We're here to see if we can describe how fat tastes. Searching for the sixth taste, it turns out, isn't only a technical problem, it's a word problem. So the challenge hinges on this. How can you perceive something if you don't have a word and therefore an established mental concept for it? Right? So in order to recognize a new basic taste, we're going to have to train ourselves to discern a separate, distinct entity among the foods we've been eating all along, because the food's not going to change, our mouth isn't going to change, the tongue isn't going to change, right? So taste researchers often compare this conundrum to the idea of isolating a new color. This is a picture of a rainbow I've been staring at for a long time. So there's actually a linguistic precedent for this. It's called category sorting. Um, so researchers point out that not all cultures break down the visible light spectrum the same way. Some cultures don't have separate words for, for green and for blue. So people who grow up in a culture that only has one word, they can still see green and blue. Their eyes still work the same way, right? They just perceive them as a singular experience. And the more I have stared at this rainbow, the more I have thought, I can kind of see what they're getting at, right? But for people who have a language that says, no, those are two different things, you can sort them into two distinct separate things. And maybe that is the same with food, right? Or maybe it's the same with taste. Maybe these things are similar, but we can't pick them out because we don't have a concept for it, right? Maybe fat's been in the taste rainbow all along. We just don't have the vernacular to pick it out. It's a total language problem, says Dr. Nicole Garneau, the museum's curator of human health, shaking her head knowingly. And we stumbled upon that right away. Just putting out a press release advertising the study forced the museum staff to confront the language problem. What are they going to call this thing? So their solution for marketing purposes, at least, was fatty acid taste, a phrase that is precise, if not exactly satisfying. The problem, Garneau points out, is that fat taste doesn't evoke a particular mental image. We have no idea what fat should taste like and no descriptive language for it. So the museum's uh, idea, their way around this roadblock, was crowdsourcing. They're going to let 1,500 people try to describe what they're tasting. That's 1,500 brains that are a lot smarter than just one scientist who's going to use some sciency name for it that isn't going to be relevant, says Garneau. We're going to have something that is simple, that is relatable, that the community can embrace and say, that's the sixth taste, and I understand what it means. Archer clicks the timer. Time to come up with some relatable words. He warns me not to evaluate how pleasant the taste is. I am not interested in good, bad, or gross, he says. That doesn't tell me anything. So I say the only word I've got that isn't already a basic taste Varnish. <laughs> Archer nods, pushing a paper towards me. Cleaner, I write. Solvent? Not too astringent. Not like, say, pine salt. Mellower. Funkier. Next, Archer has me take off the nose clips. The experience most people call taste is more accurately known as flavor, which is the combined work of the mouth and the nose. This is the uh, very gross uh, model that I saw in a, in a uh, doctor's office. That's what your head would look like if it was cut open that way. So when you eat, scent, uh, scent molecules travel from your mouth, where those teeth are located, up into the nasal passages, and the brain processes them in combination. And the scientific term for that is retronasal olfaction. Flavor perception can be dramatically altered by odor, and so the museum wants to test this too. You've probably experienced this when you have a really bad cold, right? Food doesn't taste like anything anymore. Let's take the clip off before you lose that entire thing. What do you think it smells like, he says. The scent is already vanishing as ephemeral as dream logic. Just the faintest whiff of shoe polish, I finally say. So now it's time for the scaling test. So this is where I have to taste each one and, and rate it on a scale of 1 to 10 based on how strong it is. The first tab is weak, the ghost of wood varnish. I mark what would be a 1 on a scale of 10. The second is much stronger, a 7. Still with that lacquer-like tang, although this time when Archer asked me to remove the nose clips, an extra level of funkiness emerges. There's something old about it, I say. Stale air, or suitcase leather, or old luggage. And also, is my mouth watering? If so, is it because it's almost lunchtime and these wafers are the first food-like objects I've put in my mouth all day? Is it the auto-suggestion of the writer who read a whole passel of studies about fat taste before coming to taste fat? Am I salivating because people in Mattis's coconut study did it? Heck, am I salivating because mice do it? I am sure about one thing. Whatever is happening is not fun. On the third try, I nearly became the first person in the, in the experiment's entire history to break into the oyster crackers. <laughs> so after the longest 45 seconds yet, Archer finally stops the timer. Definitely a nine. Ugh, I manage. Blech, which here is transcribed as B-R-L-R-L-R-G-R-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H
I tried to come up with some more scientifically useful words. Plastic, PVC pipe, shoes? I've defaulted to metaphor. All my adjectives have failed. Time for the last trial. I keep an eye on the crackers, but this tab is, I'm pretty sure, the placebo. I sense nothing, and my contribution to taste science is officially over. For the record, most people don't do much better. When I ask Mattis if he can describe fat, he flails too. No, no, I can't. It's awful, period, he says. It sucks the air out of your lungs. It's just terrible, nauseating. It's rancidity. It's really, really bad cooking oil, the sensation that gives you. At first, most people default to a familiar basic taste, bitter. But we don't think bitter is actually the word, says Mattis. Bitter is just being used as a way of saying it's awful. And there's a reason, he thinks, for why fat should taste unpleasant despite its texture being enjoyable. We need to eat fats, he says. So having something that would direct us to it and encourage us to consume it makes sense as much as it would for any nutrient. But free fatty acids are generated when food spoils, and it's counterproductive to eat foods that make us sick. So, he says, the role for fat taste, we believe, is more akin to the role of bitter stimuli. It's an aversive stimulus. It's saying this is probably not a wholesome thing to eat, and so it's to be avoided. So um, I asked the museum, um, when they were kind of at that, their halfway point, their first six months, I asked them if they could send me a list of what other people were saying. And so in the first six months, uh, the most common taste descriptors of the museum, uh, the museum collected were bitter, buttery, and nothing. And for smell, the top four were nothing, paper, cardboard, and plastic. But there were outliers, people who compared the taste to rotten icing, to ocean water, dandelions, or gummy bears, and the smell to seaweed, pine nuts, stamp books, or bricks. I would really like to know what the people who said it tastes like bricks have been eating. <laughs> In April 2015, the researchers released some preliminary results using data from the first 733 testers and found that so far people were proving that they could indeed taste fatty acids. People in that early pool were accurately rating intensity higher in the wafers that had more of the acid, and interestingly, women and girls were more sensitive to it than men and boys, and children were more sensitive than adults. And they think the variability of experience probably has something to do with genetics. The CD36 gene, which is the one that they think is related to a, a receptor for fat, is really pretty gnarly by genetic standards. It has 84,000 base pairs. And to, by comparison, uh, the TASAR38 uh, gene, which is one of the genes associated with bitter, only has 1,000. So that's a lot of things that could change that could affect um, gene expression and perhaps receptor function. And there's another X fa factor, which is that when it comes to perception, especially for novel stimuli, people are enormously suggestible. Thanks to Garneau's experience studying yeasts, she has a sideline working with brewers and winemakers, fields where descriptive language for taste is something of a fetish. Wine has an enormously rich and complex language, but one that is notorious for exaggeration and wishful thinking, especially when attempted by amateurs. <laughs> Garneau recalls attending a tasting at which her husband, just to see what would happen, suggested that the vintage they were drinking had a gunpowder quality. <laughs> And much to her alarm, others at the table said they could taste the gunpowder, too. So faced with a blank slate, she says, even when somebody tosses out an unlikely term, you're going to latch onto it. Your brain's going to be like, yeah, that's it, because I can't come up with the language. And that's just the stuff that we know, like the taste of wine. With a potential basic six, ta six basic taste, she says, now we're talking about a topic that we literally have no language about. So it's compounded. Your brain wants to solve. Your brain so much wants to solve this puzzle of what it's tasting, and it doesn't have the language. So whatever I, anyone throws out there, you're going to be like, yeah, that's it. So, uh, so that's the opening to the chapter. It, it goes on uh, a little while longer, and it discusses uh, one of the big things that's happening not only in taste research but in a lot of sensory science, which is that this used to be essentially a psychological study. Um, the study of taste was kind of a study of human behavior. People would eat things, and the scientists would figure out, uh, you know, how did the person react? Did they like it? Did they spit it out? Did they eat more? Uh, and within the last 20 years, it's become a, basically a biochemical science that's focused on the tongue. The whole moment of what they're studying has moved from what happens in the mind to what happens in that moment when chemical meets flesh. It's an entirely different scientific discipline. And so the scientists were saying, it's a revolution. You, you can't describe how big this change has been. I spent hours trying to Photoshop a tongue onto that phrenology head. You're just <laughs> going to have to imagine it. <laughs> so I wanted to introduce you briefly to some of the other contenders for a sixth taste 
that I, I went to, to see. This is calcium, uh, which again is a nutrient that the body needs, and that's one of the arguments for why we should be able to taste it. It's being uh, advanced by Dr. Michael Tordoff at the Monell Chemical Census Center, which is that giant gold nose that I showed you at the beginning. Um, water. There are some people who think that water might be a basic taste. And other people think carbonation, that it is actually a taste separate from the texture of carbonation bubbles. This one is really weird. This is a, a Dr. Tordoff is holding a, a, a can of polycos. There is pretty good evidence that rodents can discern three different kinds of sweet. They can essentially taste the difference between large starch chains, medium-sized starch chains, and little starch chains. And polycos uh, or maltose dextrin is something that apparently rats go crazy for, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, a, it's a starch. And Tordoff says, we don't understand why this man-made thing should be so delightful to a rat. <laughs> I tasted it. It was like eating ground styrofoam. I got nothing. <laughs> and then, you know, I had said that, that this was kind of like the search was going on for a new planet. Well, in, in, uh, in this debate, there's kind of a Pluto the thing that nobody can, nobody can agree if it should be a planet or not, and it's this concept called kokumi, and this is some kokumi powder. So the idea of kokumi is that it's not a basic taste. It is a, an effect or a phenomenon. Uh, something that has kokumi in it doesn't taste like anything, but it makes the other basic taste taste better. So it makes salt saltier, and it makes savory things savory, and it makes sweet things sweeter. And this is kokumi powder. Um, it's made by several food processors in Asia. They use it kind of as an, uh, it's marketed as an additive to add to foods to kind of simulate that texture or that uh, flavor that you get from stewing or kind of um, uh, slow cooking foods for a long time. Uh, kokumi basically literally translates to yummy flavor. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's being advanced. Uh, this, a lot of the scientific research uh, that is going on is at Ajinomoto, which is a Japanese food company, which is the food company that brought the world MSG and umami. They actually have a really amazing track record for uh, uh, advancing basic tastes in the face of Western disbelief. So, uh, so, uh, and uh, I, I won't go too deeply into it. I'll leave some spoilers for those of you who want to read the book. But the big... Uh, two big questions I kind of uh, wrap up the chapter with are, one, for those of you who, like me, remember the time when there was only four basic tastes, well, the question is, how do we learn to taste the fifth one in our lifetimes, right? And then the other question is, how did people in Japan do it a century before we did, right? And the answer has a little something to do, uh, a lot of people think, with this thing that I've mocked up, which is dashi broth. I won't tell you anymore, <laughs> in case you want to read the book. Now, uh, do you guys want to see the biohacker stuff real, real quick? Okay. I warn you, this is the grossest part, so. <laughs> it's also, I think, really cool. So um, the, ser the search for a sixth sense. So there are a lot of people who are saying, look, the basic human body, disappointing. Could be better. Could be better engineered, right? Um, <laughs> and a lot of the, uh, the basic uh, biohackers, uh, the first experiment a lot of people do is they get a magnet inserted in, into their body. Um, Tim Cannon, who is the leader of uh, Grindhouse, this is Tim, uh, one of the guys I interviewed, that's his basement. That is the Grindhouse, essentially. Um, he calls it the blood sacrifice to the grinder gods. Grinder is kind of a term derived from the, the Warren Ellis comic, uh, Dr. Sleepless Comics, uh, for basically people who hack themselves to improve sensory function. So, uh, so his group said, okay, magnet is not enough. Um, and in, in my book, I actually, uh, I should tell you, there is no department of magnetic fingers you can go to to say, does this work? Is this wishful thinking? Are people actually getting any sort of sensation? But I do advance a theory for what's going on among the people who have implanted themselves with magnets about what might be happening. Uh, so Grindhouse and, and Tim wanted to build things that worked with a, a magnet. They've invented, for example, a thing called the bottlenose, which is essentially a little sonar device that you put on your finger over your magnet, and then they use it to find objects in the room and to figure out whether people are coming closer to them or not. Um, when I met Tim, which was in the fall of 2013, he had just been implanted with a device called Circadia. And this is Circadia on the breadboard. It's about the size of a deck of cards. Um, this is Circadia encased in silicone. So this is the actual uh, floor model of the implant. And this is Circadia in Tim's arm. Yeah, uh, it's large, right? Uh, and I should say, um, he, they didn't do this themselves. They work with professional... Yeah, right. <laughs> Kids, don't do surgery on yourself in your basement. Bad, <laughs> bad. <laughs> 
So they, they work with professional piercers and body modders who did this. And what Circadia does is it, it took Tim's temperature and it ported that information to his cell phone via Bluetooth. And um, it also did this. I'm going to show you just a really quick video. There's no audio because the audio was terrible, but... So this is him charging it. He's holding a charging coil up to it. And I'm going to ask him to do it again so you can see the full effect, but you'll see when he holds the charging coil up, it blinks green three times to say, I'm charging. <laughs> and what's happening here, even though you can't hear it in the audio, is somebody in the background is singing, is humming jingle bells. <laughs> and Tim, it was right before Christmas, and Tim is saying, well, I'm a festive guy. <laughs> so that's circadian. So when, when uh, the book opens with us going to a radio shack on a Friday night, um, Tim just has implanted this thing in his arm, and we're headed to radio shack because they started to work on their next project, uh, which was an idea called the North Star. And the idea for North Star was to essentially uh, implant a compass in the back of your hand, a uh, magnetic compass. And the idea for North Star is that it would light up when you were facing north and it would give you kind of this de facto sense of direction. So this is what North Star looked like when I was there. Wires on a breadboard. And these, uh, these images are all courtesy, the forthcoming images are all courtesy of Grindhouse, and a guy there named Justin Wurst. Um, but this is their first model. You can see it's about the size of a quarter. This is their implantable model, which um, it's a little bit hard to see, but there's a star in it. And this is it implanted. They just did this uh, right before Thanksgiving. Now, this model doesn't have the compass in it. It just lights up. Um, <laughs> they, call this, they call this the light version. But this is kind of a, a prototype. They've been doing these kind of early ones, first of all, to figure out, like, can you safely do it? Will people get an infection? Um, are there going to be problems with it? Uh, so they're all kind of proof of concept. But anyway, this, this came out just about five weeks ago. So that's where they are now with it. And that's it. This is me. This is how uh, you can get in touch uh, if you want to after this. And I would love to take questions if anybody has any questions. How does the, uh, not necessarily American, but our invention of uh, marijuana affect taste? Uh, oh, <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. It's broad, but it accentuates taste. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know how it affects taste, but I can tell you. So one of the things that people have been asking me is like, uh, you know, how is this? How is this novel? Is this something that people have always have always done? And I think there's a really good argument to say that we have always altered our perception, right? Like, okay, so psychedelic drugs, any kind of drug use, is a good example. I think. and getting back to it, you talked about it being a um, psychological or therapeutic problem as opposed to a, a mechanical or a biologic. There's always an inter- interaction between what we see and how the uh, visual cortex and memory processes that information. Uh-huh. We embellish the amount of, uh, of information coming from our retina. Right. Tre- tre- crazy. And so people, children get tra- taught how to perceive what, what they taste, what they hear, what they... So you're, you're, we're constantly... Uh, I mean, our brain is a, is, an, is a sensory organ. Yeah. And we're constantly working, you know, t- recruiting new areas to, to perception, losing some of them from a stroke. Uh, it's, it's, just a, it's a much more dynamic process. I understand yeah. that no, I have a desire to kind of make it into a mechanical or implantable thing. It's very understandable, but it's really damn complicated. <laughs> it is. It's very understanding in an evolutionary sense that you kind of keep those senses you need and would help you in your environment, and you kind of don't need to keep, like, to be a rat, maybe to, to, to taste three different types of sugars because it isn't that useful. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I agree. There are so many things that affect what, what we perceive, the experience we have. That was a, a really good point. And I enjoyed your, your talk. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Come on, hit me with some weird ones, guys. <laughs> or not weird ones. You can line up behind me. <laughs> yeah, come on. Um, my question is, is there any sort of cultural divide between people who feel that they have to augment their ah. senses versus those who have to discover their senses? Oh, interesting. Any sort of culture war? Hmm, I don't, I don't know about I mean, I think there are, there's maybe a culture war between people who think, let's not augment our bodies. 
for sure. I think the biggest, one of the biggest divides in this book that I came across is that a lot of these technologies are being developed to be assistive, right? Like the retinal implant, for example, and neuroprosthetic limbs. Those are for people with a medical need, and they're being done, uh, you know, by very well-respected university researchers, right? The biohackers are saying, look, nobody's going to develop the thing I want because I don't need it, right? There's not a market for it. Doctors have an obligation to do no harm, so nobody's going to let you have a retinal implant or a neuroprosthetic limb if you don't have a need for it, right? So um, there's almost like these two silos of people who aren't talking to one another. It's kind of the university scientists who... Um, have to obey ethical guidelines, who have to uh, get grants, who have to go through these big permissions processes, and these kind of DIY guys who are doing it themselves, and they're not really talking to each other. And sometimes I kind of felt like the plague rat that was just carrying information between the two camps, you know? I would go to the neuroscientist lab and say, look what these guys built. And they'd go, whoa, here's how I built it better. And then, and then I'd go back to, and I'd, to the basement, and I'd be like, hey, guys, this is what the neuroscientist said. And they'd be like, yeah, cool, right? But, and, and a lot of them expressed frustration that nobody was really talking to one another. In fact, uh, you know, some people thought, thought it might endanger their careers if they talked to one another. But yeah, good question. Hi. So, um, oh, that was a great talk. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, so my, my question is, um, with a big presidential race warming up, I think that many of us are going to have political debates whether we want to or not. <laughs> and so I'm wondering if you learned anything about um, human cognition or perception that might be useful to us as we have those sorts of conversations. Ooh, interesting. You mean in terms of like being swayed by somebody's political ideas or? Um, yeah, something just along those lines, things that might help us kind of make sense out of those Debates, which can often be very heated and subjective. Mm, no, I had no, I hadn't uh, done anything that really touched on politics. I'll tell you, but I will tell you about the most political thing that came up in in this research, which I, I didn't talk about very much tonight. Um, but um, there's a whole chapter on augmented reality technologies, which is kind of like wearable devices, um, you know things in, along the ilk of Google Glass and smartwatches and, you know, Fitbit-like devices and stuff like this. And the real political question there was issues about privacy and surveillance, the idea of taking technology closer and closer onto the body and how much information about it, uh, about you and your behavior is it tracking and transmitting somewhere else and who gets that information and how can they use it. And that is a very um, real question, a very good question that has to do with the development of these kind of sensory enhancement devices. Another very good question, I went to uh, talk with a guy from a group called Stop the Cyborgs. Um, he's based in London and I met him in a pub and, uh, and this group basically mobilized because they were very critical of Google Glass. Um, they, they really didn't like the idea of people being kind of tapped into a network of other people and of a machine feeding you information that might alter your decision making. And the point that he made to me was he said, look, you know, every technology is created by other people, by, by, or by teams of other people, and you don't know what their ideology is. Right? You don't know what information they have chosen to give you and what information they have chosen to leave out. You don't know what their decision-making process is. So for a lot of these new devices, um, you have to kind of question what their purpose is, what their limitations are, what information they're feeding you, what is being left out. We kind of have this kind of de facto idea that technology is good and is an augment and that it's beneficial. He says, how might it divert your attention? You know, how might it uh, change your decision-making decision -making in ways that are very subtle? I thought that was an awesome political question. Yeah, sorry, it doesn't answer your question about the upcoming the race, but <laughs> yeah. Hi. Oh, hi. Enjoyed your talk very much, and your enthusiasm is absolutely contagious. Thank, Thank you, you for that. <laughs> uh, I have two questions for you, actually, sure. and they're in contrast. One is, uh, you've spent all this time doing this research, what was the one learning that you had that absolutely made your heart sing? <laughs> and conversely, what was the most scary learning that you had? Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Do you mean scary in terms of, like, ethically scary or scary as in, man, that was just gross? Uh, well, I guess maybe let's put it in a little bit more imperial, made your stomach turn. Ah, okay. Um... Okay, well, one of the things that was really kind of a delight to learn about was the 10,000-year clock project. 
um, which was in the chapter on time. And I have to say, when, you, when you're a reporter, you have to be prepared to ask some really dumb questions. So one of the really dumb questions I had to ask was, what is time, right? <laughs> so I, spent, I got to spend this entire, I, a, lot of, uh, a lot of this research process learning about time. And the 10,000-year clock project is being built by the Long Now Foundation, which is based in San Francisco, and it's uh, like Brian Eno and Stuart Brand and all of these other kind of great thinkers are on their board of directors. And they do all these projects that have to do with the idea of a long civilization and being like good stewards of the future. So they're building this clock, which is out in Texas, in the remote high desert in West Texas. They've bored into a mountain, and the clock is going to be this gigantic kind of um, vertical piece and they have built it to last 10,000 years without a human custodian. Um, it is powered by the, essentially the, the temperature differential between light and day. And the, and the engineering challenges that go into building something to last 10,000 years and kind of the mind experiment about thinking about what the world might be like in 10,000 years was just beautiful and lyrical. They've studied... Uh, they studied the pyramids, they studied Petra, they studied um, nuclear waste disposal sites, they studied the global seed uh, vault as all of, uh, to get ideas about planning for the long future. And they built this thing to be a ruin. They built it with the idea that people would either forget about it or be gone, and another civilization would have to arise and discover it. So they built it to be this kind of beautiful experience where you accidentally find it, and you have to enter kind of uh, like a crevasse in the mountain, and you find yourself in the dark with this mysterious machinery. And the way you visit the clock is you walk a winding staircase around it until you finally emerge at the top of the mountain into the sunlight. It's this beautiful idea, right? They're in the process of building, building it. They haven't built it yet. Although, if you go to San Francisco, they have a cafe called The Interval where they've actually part, they've made parts of the clock into the cafe, like the... The bar top is some of the limestone slices they carved out of the mountain, and um, there's a chime generator that's going to chime a different chime every day for 10,000 years, and the chime sequence was designed by Brian Eno. And they've taken the original chime generator and made it into a table in the cafe. <laughs> so that was like one of the most beautiful and lyrical things, I thought. Um, the grossest thing I had to watch was eyeball surgery. I actually, <laughs> yeah, I, I actually watched the videotape of Dean Lloyd getting his retinal implant. Um, I think the, most, the thing that gave me the most pause was the chapter on hearing is about stimulus reconstruction. And very briefly, stimulus reconstruction is about essentially reading brain activity. So um, the way it works is scientists will show people images or have them listen to sounds, put them in an fMRI scanner, measure their brain activity, while they're watching those things and then try to match it up so that they can reconstruct what the person heard or saw. And they're doing this because they envision that it could have a therapeutic benefit. For example, if there's somebody who is paralyzed from stroke or Lou Gehrig's disease who can't communicate, um, if we could develop a good model of their brain activity, we could actually read out their internal speech, right? Develop a device that would speak their thoughts aloud or have it typed on a computer. But you can imagine the invasive potential of this technology, too. And all of the researchers who I talked to said, look, nobody can do this without your permission. You know, you have to get in an fMRI scanner and lie there for hours. Or a lot of their subjects who they've tested on are people who are in the hospital um, for treatment for, ep for epilepsy. So they're having a craniotomy in which a piece of their skull is actually removed, uh, removed and they put a, an implant in there and record their brain activity, nobody's going to volunteer for that, right? But, you know, they would say, uh, Dr. Jack Gallen at UC Berkeley, who's one of the top researchers in this area, he'd kind of tongue-in-cheek say, uh, he would imagine what he would alternatively call either an eye hat or a Google hat, you know, something that you could just put on that would read out your brain activity. And, uh, and that, that's something to think about, right? Yeah. 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 So, great question. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Are there any safety concerns with like implants or wearable tech devices? And I ask that just because I used to hear about like if somebody used a cell phone like on the left ear, ninety percent of the time they'd get if they were going to get a brain tumor, they would get it on, on the left side. I so. don't know about that. Yeah, the whole idea of cell phones and tumors. I know that the people have researched that. I didn't look into it with implants. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. No. The guys who are doing this stuff in their basement are taking all kinds of safety risks. This is not okay. FDA approved. Don't do it at home. <laughs> um, 
and they are they are going very very slow. They would tell me like the the Circadia that you saw. Mm-hmm. Um, they were so worried about the battery breaching that they would sit there with a hammer and try to hammer a nail into it just to see if it would breach. And uh, and they worked with a, a professional piercer who makes these kind of silicon body jewelry pieces, so they didn't do that themselves either. I, w- I wouldn't do it at home. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 like MSG, is that, that talking about that? Is that? Isn't that supposed to be bad for you? You know, people, people like there was the MSG scare in the 80s, which is one of the reasons people think it took Americans so long to, to latch on to the umami idea, but it's been basically debunked. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. as far as I can tell. Yeah. Okay. Hi. Uh, oh, is my headset coming off? Oh, should I just, can I lean into this thing? Okay. Hey, uh, hey. can you help me understand uh, the people who are into the implants? Yeah. It's, you know, it, I can hold a compass in my hand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, see, this is a question everybody wants to know. So it's interesting to me. Is it something that's important to them because it becomes inside of them like part of their identity? Yeah. Or are they experimenting with, like, can we put stuff in our bodies? Like, what's the primary I love this there? question. This is great, right? So I ask people this question, too. One of the things that people um, uh, implant a lot is RFID chips, which, you know, those are the things like on your, your toll pass, and if you have a card to swipe into work that has an RFID chip in it. Um, and so th- these are really easy to implant. I watched a bunch of them. They just inject it with a syringe. Um, and, uh, and people use them to do things like start their computer, open the door at their house. I, I met a guy who uses his to turn on his motorcycle. And I said to him, yeah, right? I was like, why not just do it with a card, you know? Right? I do this with my wallet when I walk into work, right? And he said, it's because it has become a part of my body. It is a part of my basic human capabilities. It's part of me now. It, and, and I asked uh, Steve Hayworth, who is one of the... Um, uh, body modification artist who pioneered the implanted magnet, who's been wearing magnet for a long time. I asked him the same thing. And he's, he says it allows him to feel things in the world around him. It allows him to feel like when his hard drive spools up, when he's standing next to the refrigerator, when he can feel electric current. And he says, if I lost it, I would feel bereft. I would feel like I lost a sense. He really feels like it's part of his experience now. So, yeah, that was it. Yeah. Oh. So you mentioned that uh, individuals really carry their own perceptions with them. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite books is Theodore Sturgeon's More Than Human. I don't know if you've read that. I haven't. It's about a group of people that band <laughs> together, and they create like an uber consciousness, a gestalt. Ah. Did you study anybody that was getting, I guess, like group mind about perception or cognition or consciousness in so some I- way? I'm going to take my, my earpiece off as I answer okay. this question. So, okay. Very meta. So, so that's a really good question. When I um, <laughs> so one of the uh, one of the big questions that came up over and over is what is a cyborg, right? And I actually kind of devoted a big part of it. If you're if you're into cyborgs, read chapter ten. Um, to the question of what is a cyborg, and a lot of people would argue that. Um, Anything really makes you a cyborg, right? I, uh, I, one of the people in this book is Rob Spence, better known as Iborg, who's a guy who uh, lost one of his eyes as a kid in a shooting accident. And as an adult, as a documentarian, he built an eye camera that actually goes in his eye socket. And he basically beat GoPro and uh, Google Glass and pretty much even the iPhone to this idea of a small camera that you wear over your eye. He was one of the first people to like deal with all these questions about privacy and surveillance and intrusiveness and, and in a cool way. And when I asked him what's a cyborg, because he should know, right? He said, wearing a t-shirt makes you a cyborg, right? Because it protects you from freezing in the snow. Like anything that makes you more than a naked ape makes you a cyborg. And then a lot of other people would say that's bogus. I mean, like then you might as well just say human, right? Um, but when I asked uh, Adam Wood, the guy from Stop the Cyborgs, he says the thing the thing that makes a cyborg a cyborg is that you're you're part of a network, right? Yeah, he's, that you're part of this community of other people and that you govern each other's behavior. And he finds that. That's the thing that he finds problematic about augmented reality technologies is that you're connected to a cloud of other people and that they subtly influence your perception and your actions. So, so yes, definitely I ran across people who thought, that was, um, who thought that was a problem. He kind of had this idea of like um, this imaginary grid in which you would have like a tool 
based on um, how much it's connected to the network versus not being connected. And at one end, it's like a hammer, and at the other end, it's the Borg. You know, and he's very alarmed about anything that's on the Borg end of the spectrum. Is this a question? First off, thanks for the talk. It was very insightful. Sure. Thanks. Um, this is, I suppose, more of an open-ended one. Um, just what your thoughts are on sensory deprivation, like isolation tanks. Um, those seem to be kind of a seems to be kind of a booming kind of thing. I, I'm a, I partake in it from time to time, and I find pretty pretty exceptional benefits. And uh, just from the sheer fact that you're getting magnesium from the Epsom salts, but you're also cutting off your all of your senses basically for the first time. Yeah. You know, so you like it. I love it. Yeah. yeah it okay. could, and it could be a placebo thing. I'm not sure. Has anybody else here but. done it? Oh, lots of people. Wow. I've never done this. There's actually, in my building, there's a business that has these sensory deprivation tanks. And I've never been because I'm a giant claustrophobe. Sure. <laughs> I totally chickened out. Also, just for the record, I didn't get any magnets for the same reason. <laughs> but no, I haven't done it. So you haven't heard much about the... Um any of the effects, any no. implications, or anything? No, the direction it I've may go. heard a lot of people say that they enjoy it, but no, I haven't read any studies about it or anything like that. Okay. Thank yeah. You. Thanks. Question. How do we sense time? Ah, <laughs> great question. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay, so here I will. I will just very, very give you the brief overview of what is time. So the best answer to what is time I got from Dr. Dean Buonomano, who's a neuroscientist at UCLA who studies time. And he says time is a measure of how much things around you change. I thought that was pretty good, right? That's pretty great. So the, the, the weird thing about time is there is no time lobe or time organ or, you know, there, there is no gathering of cells that sense time. And to the best of anybody's knowledge, it's distributed throughout the brain. And they actually think that time, that our brain, Buono Mano's lab thinks that the brain tells time through a distributed network. So that basically time is in um, kind of the pattern of, of, of neural cells reacting to one another. So a sensory stimulus comes in, the cells react, the reaction kind of travels through the circuit, the circuit resets, and that's one of the waves, the ways that our brain tells time. Does that, I mean, it's, it's complicated. I explain it more in the book, but there, there is no, there used to be these uh, theories that there was like a, some kind of ticker or oscillator or counter in the brain, and that's, I think, been largely put aside into this idea that it's kind of a distributed network. And also, they think different parts of the brain tell time on different scales. So there's probably like a, sub-millisecond scale, and then a few millisecond scales, and then these larger circuits that have to do with memory are kind of much more larger frames of time. It's complicated. I also describe how an atomic clock works, which if you ask me now, I could not tell you, but I guarantee it's in there. <laughs> Is this a question? So do you have any, uh, like, a, a prediction or insights into what the future of integration with devices looks like? Or maybe 50 years, 100 years, I don't know, like if you yeah. have a, any concrete thoughts on this, but that'd be great. Um, so, oh man, that's a good question. So um, I'm not much of a forecaster, but um, I think one of the things I realized in writing this book is that a lot of what's going on is not new, it's just kind of more so, right? Like we've always, uh, we've always influenced each other socially, we've always done things to kind of hack our perception, it's just that it's moving closer onto the body. I think a fair prediction would be that a lot of these augmented reality devices are going to be used in the workplace first because they're very practical. A lot of them are being used for things like warehouse pickers, um, you know, who have to pick things off a shelf and pack them in a box so they're wearing spectacles that tell them what to pick. Um, another uh, uh, big application is in the medical industry. So I think they'll go to industry first, and I also think gaming and entertainment will be very popular. But these are going to be things that you can just take off and put aside. These will not be implantables, which I think are going to be the province of medical need for a while now. Yeah, I don't have a time frame on it. Maybe just one more question, and then I know folks got to go. So, yeah, over here. I, I was just wondering if you learned anything about the difference in our perception between ordinary sound and music. Oh, no, okay, so I will tell you that the chapter on hearing, which is about stimulus construction, starts, um, uh, actually it starts with people listening to, uh, 
to podcasts, but also uh, also to music. But no, I did not learn much uh, specifically about um, music. And one of the reasons is because a lot of the research that's happening now is with speech, because speech is very specific to the human brain. It's something that we do and that other animals don't, uh, or at least in, in our particular way. So, so no, actually most of the research in this book is more, more about speech. It's a good question, though. That would be a cool thing to look into. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's it. Thank you, everybody. You've been wonderful. That's it for this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Kara Platoni spoke at Town Hall Seattle on January 13, 2016. Thank you again to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Tune in again soon for more from Speakers Forum.